1: Hello, Jonathan Friedland here. We're going to run this week's episode of Politics Weekly America here for you. But please, if you enjoy the show, make sure to search for Politics Weekly America on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and then hit that subscribe button. And you need to do that even if you already subscribe to Politics Weekly UK. I'll be there with all the news from Washington every Friday. Thanks so much. This was the week Ukraine came to Washington. In rather extraordinary scenes, even for Capitol Hill, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, addressed Congress. Remotely, from his bunker in Kiev, he did it via video link.
2: I have a dream. These words are known to each of you today. I can say I have a need.
1: He thanked the United States for its support so far.
2: For everything that your government and your people have done for us.
1: But then he criticised politicians for not doing more.
2: To create a no-fly zone zone over Ukraine to save people. Is this too much to ask? Humanitarian no-fly zone.
1: After showing members of Congress a short but very disturbing video of the destruction Russia has already inflicted on Ukraine and the Ukrainian people, he addressed Joe Biden directly and in English.
0: I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader
1: of peace. Now, the word in Washington is that there are divisions between the White House and Congress over just how far and how tough America should be. It seems likely that the speech by the Ukrainian president will now pile on the pressure on Joe Biden to do more. And it's not easy. At home, oil and gas prices are soaring and looming over the whole political landscape are those mid-term elections in November. Joe Biden doesn't need to pick a fight with Democrats, he needs their support. But there's an additional problem. A whole lot of House Democrats are deciding not to fight this November. But why, with everything that's happened in the first year or so of Joe Biden's time in office, do they smell electoral disaster? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. One of the people in the audience on Wednesday to hear Volodymyr Zelensky is one of those Democrats choosing not to seek re-election in November. Brenda Lawrence represents Michigan's 14th district. But this will be her last year in Congress. Before asking her why she decided to leave, I wanted to know what she thought of the United States' response and Joe Biden's response so far to the
2: war in Ukraine. I give kudos to uh, President Biden, who has constantly been at the table with NATO to promote diplomacy, which has failed. You know, has failed. But using the power of NATO is critical. The American people are on sitting on the edge of their seat, worrying that a World War Three may start, and it's just like the discussion about the Polish planes. What Poland offered was to fly all of its MiGs from Poland here to a US airbase Ramstein, US NATO airbase in Germany,
0: and then have them flown somehow into Ukraine.
2: That will send a strong, accelerated message to Putin, who we know doesn't need a lot to uh, start retaliating and, and being destructive, and his evilness will be Fed, and so we are uh, at a point where we're using all of our NATO partners to use economic sanctions, which you know if you want to attack your enemy is to cut off their economic strength and we have we're doing that well unfortunately it's just it's a long process, and some people are just so anxious because they want something to happen right now
1: it's interesting that you mentioned the example of the transfer of those Polish fighter jets? Because, of course, the administration in the end through the Defence Department blocked that transfer from happening. Is it your view and, and and are there more of you in Congress who would like to see the White House go further than the current position, which is to say we won't do anything that enforces a no-fly zone and that might provoke the Russians? You said a moment ago that NATO should use all its power. I'm hearing in what you're saying that you actually think the administration should go further and perhaps deploy some of that hard power. We know
2: if Putin continues and cross the border into one of our NATO allies, then it's no more a discussion. They They have invoked a war with NATO. So far, Putin has not done that. He's been very close, as you know. But I am uh, very clear and very, I can tell you, anxious that Putin has no boundaries and he will continue to attack. That's why the power of NATO cannot be uh, disrupted, because an enemy of yours is an enemy of mine. You attack one of us, you attack all of us.
1: You mentioned that uh, if there was a single, you know, attack of any kind on a NATO country, then the discussion is over. The United States and other NATO members would act. Are you absolutely sure of that? I just wonder if you hear something in Joe Biden's words that there is a real reluctance to tangle with a nuclear power. And I've heard people, including diplomatic sources, saying. You know, if it really came to it and it was about Estonia, would America actually get itself in a shooting war with the Russians? What's your answer to that? We have agreements
2: and the structure of NATO is that we support our members of the NATO agreement. If that happens, and we all know that Putin is, I feel personally, is unstable. But in addition to that, he has nuclear power. And that is a game changer in the United States to become engaged is scary. But I know that there will be the pressure to do what we need to do, because if they continue, they get stronger and we can't allow that.
1: Let's talk about some of the consequences for this on American voters at home, as it were, the most immediate consequence is that the sanctions that the West has put on Russia has driven up the cost of gas and oil. And that comes on top of a big spike in inflation anyway.
0: In just the last week, in this escalation, you have seen gas prices spike by their biggest amount ever on record, 63 cents higher in just one week nationwide in many places seeing even bigger jumps than that.
1: It means that day to day life for Americans is expensive and getting more expensive. What are you hearing from Voters in your district, there in Michigan, what are people saying to you about their willingness to pay through their own pocket for uh, this conflict, this confrontation with Russia? Do they understand it? Are they, in, you know, are they patient, or are they getting angry about it?
2: Well, one of the things that I'm looking at personally is price gouging. We know that the Russian oil is a small percentage of our overall consumption of oil or the oil that we buy. And we see the prices at the pump increasing. Some of that is fear. Some of that is the concern about it running out. But we are going to have to hit this nail on the head from more than one angle. We're going to have to ensure the American people that the current burden of oil is a reality and a response to us supporting the Ukrainian people. But in addition to that, we have to hold these petroleum producers and those who run our gas stations that we will monitor and penalize those who takes advantage of this crisis that we're in right now.
1: And I mean, we're speaking obviously in March of 2022. By the time we get to November and the midterm elections, is it your sense, even with the kind of advocacy and sort of making of the argument that you and your colleagues will do over these coming months and that the White House will do, is it your sense that voters, that their patience will last that long, that they will still understand that, yes, this is about Ukraine and taking on Russia, even as they are feeling this hit in their pocket right the way into November?
2: The American voter has very short memory, right? We just went through a pandemic. And the fact that we're coming out of that, the fact we stopped the number of deaths is from the leadership of Joe Biden. The fact that we were able to put money in the pockets, we were able to put shots in the arm and we were able to bring the job market back are things that is Absolutely. To me, worthy of some form of recognition. But what I will tell you is that the price of gasoline does impact families. And I feel strongly that it is going to be a consideration. The challenge with the gas pump is something that is real. We have to acknowledge it. And we have to use every tool or the tool kit to make sure that we can lower the cost of gas. And I'm hopeful if we do everything we're supposed to do, the facts are the facts that we will be successful in keeping the House and the Senate.
1: I mean, that's an optimistic view uh, that the, the you know this can be turned around, good results for the House and Senate. You yourself have decided not to run and not to contest or fight again your own seat. Tell us why you've made that decision.
2: So, Jonathan, um, I have 30 years as an elected official school board, city council mayor, and now as a member of Congress. I worked a 30-year career in the Postal Service. So when you look at it, it's not 60 years, but it is really 60 years of service. I went through four years of the water holes being in my face with the policies and the actions of our previous president, which just vexed my soul. And then on top of that, we went into a a pandemic that just took lives and people were dying around me at a rate that, you know, obviously I've never seen before. And then, you know, the last 12 months, I lost two sisters. I'm the only sibling left. I'm also was on the floor on January the sixth. And it changed me forever. But I am uh I'm so grateful for the opportunity. I'm so grateful for the ability to serve. And I like to sum it up, Jonathan, by saying if you read a really, really good book and there's adventures in there. There are people who are coming in and out, the characters. I'm at that point where I'm excited to turn the page and see what this next chapter is going to be. I'm going to continue to serve. It will just be in a different capacity.
1: I'm sorry to hear about the loss of your two sisters. Uh, and I do understand that the there is that these things are always in the end, very personal decisions. But I'm struck what you said about how January the 6th vexed your soul and that that, it, and it felt like a kind of fire hose in your face four years of trump to what extent is it those political events beyond just the personal that have made you think i just can't really do this anymore you know i'm not a
2: person who's a quitter i wouldn't be where i am today being a minority and a woman in america if i didn't know how to stand up and fight but when i say january the 6th changed me forever i never Fear for my life. I never felt like the partisan division would turn to pure violence. It's a moment in our history that was just hard for me to process. Do we need to continue to fight? Absolutely. Did I take an oath of office to serve and protect? I have done that. But I, after 30 years in reflecting my mortality, losing my sister's, My husband looked me in the eye and said, this year is our 50th wedding anniversary. He said, when is our time? Few people recognize the sacrifices that are made when you go into public office. Your family takes the back seat. When I was a mayor, when we had that big power outage and half of the northeast was dark. This is what officials are saying is the result of natural causes. The tripping of power systems for hundreds of miles in several big cities today and the interior of those cities has now tripped into
1: darkness this evening.
2: Everybody was running home to make sure their family was okay. I had to go to City Hall and take care of my city. I couldn't sit at home and just say I'm taking care of my family. And I did that with honor and fulfillment of me keeping my oath of office. And so I'm I feel really good about this decision and I look forward to serving in another capacity.
1: So you're you're one of thirty-one Democrats in the House, and a lot of them it will be personal reasons like the kind you've just described. And in fact, in the case of eight, they these are people who are running for for other offices in their states. But beyond that, it is still a big number. I mean, it's twice the number on the other side. It's 16 Republicans who are making the same move. So just to even allowing for the regular churn of, of, of human life, and you've, you've spoken about that part of it, I think, very effectively. What explains why so many Democrats are deciding that, that you know, it's enough?
2: I really don't want to take... Uh, attempt at defining why other people are living, because this is not a fly-by-night or flippant decision. It took a whole year of soul-searching. And I would hope any other member who makes this decision would be very deliberate in processing where you are, what you need to do, how much you've given. And if you're giving up a safe seat or impacting the ability for us to keep the
1: house It's a big decision, as you say. Some of those seats that are being given up will not be uh, as safe or as solidly Democratic as yours. Those retirements will be in seats that suddenly become winnable for Republicans. I mean, do you think, given the headwinds that are against Democrats this year, do you think, in a way, those people, not in your position, but those people who are in those kinds of seats have a responsibility to sit it out and wait till the weather gets better for Democrats before they decide to give up a seat and potentially make it more winnable for their opponents?
2: Our majority is so small. I know for a fact Joe Biden has provided exceptional leadership. Our Senate has not passed a lot of the bills, like voting rights, like the Build Back Better and the other things that we know would absolutely provide to the American people that sense of trust being restored, that you all are there to take care of us as a country, not to fulfill your own political agenda. And I say shame on the uh, Republican Party in the Senate who, and I would say it to my two Democratic members who are literally blocking legislation. That's going to help the American people. And you know, then you put a mic in front of them, they say, Oh, yeah, we 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 support the issues, but we just can't support the bill. I mean, shame on them.
1: And yeah, you're talking there about Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Cinema of, of Arizona. We've talked about them a lot on the podcast and how their no votes are, are essentially preventing Democrats getting their program through. Do you think because of that there's now a pressure and need for your party to dilute the bill down to whatever it takes to get Manchin and Sinema to vote for it, just so that Democrats, including your successor in your district in Michigan, have got some kind of record to run on?
2: The thing that has troubled me the most being a member of Congress is the amount of compromise for things that are good. How can you, as a Democrat, not support voting rights? We see it's just being torn apart, like unravelling a sweater. It's it's just they keep pulling on that that thread. And if we don't have a democracy with a protected right to vote, we don't exist. There's no America.
1: I mean, if, if it does go as the polls say it will, which is Democrats lose both the House and Senate, what does that mean for Joe Biden? Is his presidency at that point in effect, over, because he's, at the moment, his party controls both houses of Congress, albeit narrowly. If after November he controls neither house and he's just sitting there on his own in the White House, what can he possibly do? That's the question, and that's
2: what we as a Democratic Party has have to fight hard to make sure that does not happen.
1: Tell me, you're looking back now on, I think... Eight years since you were elected as a the member for the 14th district in Michigan. You've had a long career. You know, you're partly looking, as you said, forward to the page turning. But when you look back, what's been a highlight, perhaps the highlight, of your term in the House of Representatives?
2: I have so many highlights, but um my leadership on the black caucus being their voice in the room for African Americans around mm-hmm this country, being a voice for women in Congress, getting bipartisan postal reform done, getting the authorization for the Violence Against Women Act, the People's Act, and uh, that infrastructure bill. I was a former mayor. And one of the things that kept us awake at night is the failing infrastructure for our water, for rose, the internet, all those things, uh, our electrical grid. So finally, to be able to pass that, it was a hard bill to pass.
1: Congresswoman, we always ask our guests on the show a what else question. And I know this is a long way off. And you will be watching this in some ways as a, as a as an observer rather than a player on the field. But come 2024, long way off, as I said, Who do you and your fellow Democrats fear facing most on the other side? There's a Republican field, obviously, the former President Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis of Florida. Of all those candidates, who's the one you most don't want Joe Biden to have to face?
2: Donald Trump is just disruptive. It's just un-freaking-believable. But he was able to beat him once. So if he ran again, I'm counting on him beating him again. DeSantis is smarter politically. DeSantis has found a sweet spot between connecting politics with the rhetoric. So I would say my biggest concern would be uh, DeSantis.
1: Well, that is a good and direct answer. Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, still the representative of Michigan's 14th district. Thanks so much for talking to me on the podcast.
2: I am so excited to talk to you, Jonathan. Please be safe, take care, and I look forward to talking to you again.
1: And that is all from me for this week. On Monday's edition of Today in Focus, Hannah Moore spoke to Melissa Murray, who's a law professor at New York University and was on the shortlist to be Joe Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court. The pair discuss how Ketanji Brown Jackson ended up as his choice and the importance of the Supreme Court to everyday American life. So do search for that wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to listen back to Thursday's edition of our sister podcast, Politics Weekly UK, as John Harris speaks to the Ukrainian MP Kira Rudik, who tells him how what Russia has done can only mean that Ukraine and other countries should invest in nuclear programmes. Lastly, before I go, I do often ask you to send us your questions and comments for this podcast and I'm always delighted when you do that. But The Guardian is now running a big podcast survey for the next couple of weeks and we would love as many people as possible to take part. So if you have the time and you have some thoughts, which I'm sure you do, do please click on the link which we'll include in today's episode description. But for now it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens. the executive producer is Max Anderson and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks